Welcome to The Way Home with Laura Smith, the show that brings you wonderful guests, helpful advice, and uplifting stories. The Way Home. Be inspired. Here's your host, Laura Smith. So good to be with all of you tonight on The Way Home. I'm Laura. Well, uh, tonight's first guest is a remarkable author whose book just came out in April and has been called by Oprah Magazine one of the most highly anticipated historical fiction novels of the year. And uh, I'm very proud to say she's a good friend as well. She's written a book called Leonora in the Morning Light. It's, as I said, historical fiction, bringing in true life stories of the surrealists back during World War II and their incredible relationships and, and all that went with that movement really beautifully told by Michelle Carter. So I'm really excited to have her start the program today. We're also going to be hearing from Lori Ben, and she's going to tell us about what you should expect um, before taking an AP exam for your, for your children and your uh, teenage students as well. And we'll also be hearing from Purva Jashapura, and she is from PETA, talking about the meat and dairy industry. And also we'll be hearing from Carla Grant Pickens on the power of neurodiversity. It's all here and brought to you by an extraordinary product and company called Balance of Nature. Balance of Nature is fruits and veggies in a capsule and the whole health system, which includes fiber and spice as well. They have just these three products that are absolutely life-changing. I myself have been on them for, oh my goodness, close to 10 years now. And I'll tell you, it has been truly a gift and only one that true nature can give because there's nothing else in these products except for food and something that is good for your body, your nutrition, and boosting your immune system. There are other products kind of like it on the market, but there is nothing, no equal, no match to balance of nature. And it has been uh, put together by Dr. Douglas Howard. He's a medical doctor as well. And he spent years researching on which fruits and vegetables and fiber and spice that should all work in concert to create the most amazing opportunity for the right nutrition and the right amount of it that you can't get anywhere else unless you spend all day in the kitchen chopping for hours and hours. Uh, Balance of Nature is found on the website at balanceofnature.com. And you can also uh, call them at this easy to remember number. 800-2468-751, 800-2468-751. And either way that you do uh, subscribe to Getting Balance of Nature, make sure you put Laura into the promo code. That's going to give you 35% off of your first preferred order and free shipping. When we come back, Michelle Carter, the author of the brand new Leonora in the Morning Light, a beautiful historical novel. You won't want to miss this. Balance of Nature's Fruits and Vegetables in a Capsule. Changing the world one life at a time. I have so much energy. It's ridiculous. I have to make myself go to bed at night because I'm not tired. I'm telling all my friends it's so worth it because I have so much energy. And I'm energetic anyway, but I usually fall to bed exhausted at night. But mm-hmm. no, I have to make myself go to bed because I could still be doing other stuff. I feel wonderful. I really, really feel wonderful. Balance of nature is incredible. It really is. Get a wide variety of all your daily recommended servings of whole fruits and vegetables without having to leave your home. Right now, Balance of Nature is offering free shipping and 35% off on any new preferred order. Start your journey to better health today by calling 1-800-2468-751. That's 800-2468-751. Or go to balanceofnature.com and use discount code Laura. Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. Well, I'm thrilled. Per usual, this is what I start every show saying. I'm always excited about some reason or other, but this one has been truly exciting for me. I have someone uh, with me today who is a friend who I haven't even had the pleasure of talking with for a couple of decades now. But uh, when I met her in California about 25, 23 years ago, she made such an impression on me, and I've never forgotten her. Well, lo and behold, um, it comes out to be that she is uh, not only uh, an award-winning poet and has uh, come onto the, the the scene in literature, but she is also now um, what I have a feeling is going to be a best-selling author. My guest is uh, one of Oprah Magazine's most anticipated historical fiction novels novelists. Um, that she says will sweep you away. And Lit Hub, which is um, calling it one of the most anticipated and 
uh, exciting books of 2021. I have a feeling it's going to be a dynamic summer read that's going to go well beyond the summer. Michelle Carter, um, besides being my friend, has been writing and painting and writing poetry that has won awards, as I said. She also is uh, a co-founder in a bookstore, which is independent, something that is so rare these is um, exciting in and of itself. So, Michelle Carter, thank you so much for joining me here to talk about your beautiful, beautiful brand new book, Leonora in the Morning Light. I have goosebumps even saying it. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Laura. It's, it's so great to see you and talk to you. This is so, well, to be mentioned in Oprah Magazine about one of the most anticipated books of the year, this is, uh, that's, a, that's really a feat. I mean, when you think about the millions of people that are writing books and putting books out to be singled out in that way. But what makes it so unique is the fact that it is a historical novel, historic fiction, which I, I want to ask you about in and of itself, because I find it a fascinating genre, because I tend to like nonfiction and I like novels. But when you get them both together, I wonder what that process is. How did you start writing Leonora in the Morning Light? And tell us a little bit what it's about. It's an incredible story of the surrealist movement um, back at the back in World War II, and it's just thrilling. Well, you know, it was seven years of research um, and writing went into it, and um, I I started out wanting to know more about the women who were associated with this all-male surrealist circle. Um, I, I, I love surrealism. I love the strangeness and the kind of juxtapositions of odd, um, different kinds of things. I, I, I just, I love the way they looked at the world and how they were turning things upside down. Um, and it stemmed from um, World War I, too. And a lot of them had been in World War I and were disillusioned with what the world was. And so they started this movement called Dada. And I'm sure you've heard of it. But um, and then that, the way I see it, it kind of morphed into surrealism. But I wanted, I knew I wanted um, a female protagonist. And in all the books I had, it was all, it was all the guys. So I... Um, was able to go um, to Paris and um, London too, and to, to research um, more about it. Um, and, and then that is where I found Leonora Carrington um, at the Tate Modern. I saw one of her paintings and I just couldn't believe I'd never heard of her after seeing her work that was so captivating. Um, and then her story was, I, because the surrealists really, um, like they had this thing for muses, for women as um, a muse, as a vehicle for them to reach their own unconscious and their the source of their creativity. Um, but like they, that's kind of all the mention that they got. And there were these amazing women painting with them. Um, Dorothea Tanning and Leonora, Leonor Finney. Um, so it's been such a, a wonderful journey discovering the women um, and how, and, and then Peggy Guggenheim also is a big part of the novel. Yes. Um, and she really was responsible for bringing modern art and artists to America and changed the landscape of American modern art. I mean, it's just incredible. It was such a, a wonderful journey to get to take. And I, I can tell you, I really miss writing about these people um, writing from their points of view, you know, because it's three points of view. It's Leonora, um, Max Ernst, who's this amazing person and artist and who was locked in an internment camp for enemy aliens uh, in France because he was German. So when the war yeah. broke out, he just had this incredible uh, journey that he went on. And yeah, it, it it definitely swept me away writing it. <laughs> so yeah. so it, it was it was wonderful to see it in in the Oprah magazine. The way you write it, you go um you you go back and forth between time and and so 
part of, you're reading a chapter and it's the future, at, you know, of where they are. And then you go back to when they were just meeting and falling in love, Max Ernst and Leonora um, Carrington. And so you keep doing that throughout it. It creates this incredible sense of drama. And and I really find it almost like the surrealistic movement itself in terms of the book and how you're doing it. It seems to, you know, break some of the rules. It's it's historical. And I'm trusting as I'm reading it that the histor a lot of the history in there is rock solid in terms of your research, um, because I had read in one of your reviews that it was meticulously researched. <laughs> um, so that that makes me very happy because I feel like I'm learning something as I'm going through and I'm hearing these things. Uh, not only about that artist movement, but about people of that time and what was happening in Europe um, under Nazi Germany and everything. So there's just all this stuff going on at the same time. And yet it reads like this just gorgeous novel that is I, it's hard to put into words. Your writing is just so it's like a painting. You paint, uh, I know, um, on the side, but they write and you paint, you do poetry. It makes sense. But Truly, I mean, there's just any given sentence has the most beautiful language and visuals in it as you're reading it. And it's sometimes I go back and I'll reread the sentence because of the way that it's expressed. Like I've never heard things expressed that way before. And it reminds me of the artwork that you um, that the book is about Leonora in The Morning Light um, by Michelle Carter. She's my guest right now and one of Oprah's picks for, you know, the most anticipated and great summer reads and be well beyond that. It's going to go for sure. So, Michelle, you you started discovering these artists and then the love stories within them. I mean, Max Ernst, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, he <laughs> had what we'd call a player these days. That's right. As, in addition yeah. to being a painter, he was a player. But he was a what player. a fascinating guy. Yeah. 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 These were different times, <laughs> right? You know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, he. He chose women well. I would say that, like uh, his, I love the women who were um, his lovers at different times. There's uh, Leonor Finney is one, and then his first wife, Lou Strauss Ernst, was just, just um, an amazing woman journalist, um, so strong. And and then there's Marie Baird, who was his wife. Poor thing, I, like just. Yeah, she suffers in the novel a bit. But really, I tried to, um, everything happened. Like, I, in the main events are all true in there. So you're right to think that that is, you know, the history of the things changed and the maybe the place, that, you know, because I, I made up scenes. I made up what they were feeling and thinking, of course. There's right. no way so to th know that's that. That's what I was wondering as I, I'm, I'm reading it and I'm going, well, I, I'm, I'm certain this is part of history. And then I'm going, well, no, those types of details wouldn't be known. So I guess that's where when you write a historical novel, I mean, that that's very daunting, I would imagine how you do it so that you are not embellishing to the point of disregarding things as they actually happen, but indeed just sort of making them just more accessible so they make sense and putting them into context. Um, was it hard writing historical, a uh, historically, uh, you know, fiction that, that both you want to tell the truth of what was going on and you also want to make it, I, at what point do you take it to places that you have absolutely no idea where it went or do you try to stay as close to what happened historically as possible? Yeah, you know, it was I, it was a real challenge <laughs> because uh, to be a novel, you it needs to have um, a, a certain dynamism, right? A certain, you know, you need to know what these characters really want, and um, and shaping it around that. And so there was really there was too much information out there, truly, because um, Max wrote um, an autobiography. Um, it's strange. And he wrote it in the third person. Um, <laughs> but and, and then Leonora wrote down below her account of being in Santander in the asylum there in Spain. And that is crazy and surreal. Like there's so much packed into that. Um, what it's about, I don't know, her account, 50 pages, maybe or somewhere in there. Um, and so 
and then a lot of the the minor characters too, like Jimmy Ernst, Max's son, wrote an autobiography and wrote about his father and um, Dorothea Tanning, an older, uh, like Max's last wife, wrote <laughs> accounts too. But they're all like, at least the surrealist accounts are kind of surreal, right? They're they're strange. <laughs> so some of them would um, kind of uh, seem to say different things. Um, and so it was finding what worked for the novel, too, like sometimes kind of choosing or like Max's description from just his um, on the pl- on the train when he's on the ghost train from that. I thought it was like a passenger train. The way he described it, it seemed like they were in seats. But then I read this amazing firsthand account of being in Camp DeMille and on the ghost train by Leon Futzwanger, who's a German writer. And he went into a lot of detail. And that was where I gleaned a lot of the gritty kind of details of what that might have actually been like. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but there were so many cool things too that that I, I wanted to include that I just couldn't include because, you know, a, a novel, I mean, it can sprawl here and there, but I wanted it to feel compelling um, mm-hmm. and, and it's really compelling. You oh, actually <laughs> absolutely accomplish that. It is compelling and it's beautiful at the same time. So there's a mixture of all this love story in there with this wonderful backdrop um, to Europe at that time. And then just this incredible movement, which I have to tell you, because I was reading the book, I started researching myself on the surrealistic movement and I was really amazed by it when I thought of, I never have had much appreciation for that genre of art, but when I read about them and then read about them in your book and the people behind it, I think what courage, you know, when, when, if you think about back in the 1920s, that they were exploring these modalities and, and, and doing it and making a name for themselves, you know, it's so easy to forget that that was really, um, they were out there (laughs) that was, and really out there. And we think, oh no, now everything's out there. Not true. I mean, this was, this was a hundred years ago that these people were taking these bold steps and moves to change entire ways of, acting within society and in, in terms of uh, creating new movements in art. And then also through, through the backdrop, once again, of, of impending war and, and um, just the social mores of the times, Leonora in your book, the protagonist, you know, coming from a, a British sort of arist- aristocratic family and being expected to be this sort of, you know, debutante and she turn <laughs> what she turns into, um, you know, is just something so different from that. But that was a real person. And she did that in real time. And, and right. I, I find it quite amazing, quite courageous. And in fact, I read that she went on because she lived the rest of her life in Mexico City, she went on to found the women's liberation movement in Mexico. I mean, so this yes. is these are characters of courage. Incredible. Yeah, she went on to live this powerful life um, and making more than 2,000 works of art, too. And yeah, and, and being a part of the Mexican Women's Liberation, one of the founders of it, um, super feminist, eco-feminist is what mm-hmm. people refer to her as, um, because she was so um, strongly felt about, you know, the um, animals and that the earth is, um, deserves its own um, agency, you know, <laughs> not to right. be. Right, very, very ahead of yeah, the time. Destroyed. I could, you could read this book and you think you're reading about people in today's day in life and it's not that it's just really fascinating um i'm so excited for you michela tell me you know you you wrote poetry and then you became awarded like with it when when you put it out there um you put out uh, your first book um further out than you thought further yeah. out than you think yes you wrote that it also gained acclaim right away and now you this is your first historical fictional novel and it is, you know, have you been like sitting your whole life 
dreaming up these things and then just waiting to this beautiful moment in your life when you just sort of <laughs> put it all out there and then it ends up being you know, as if you've been around for 50 years. I mean, it's amazing. Oh, that's so, that's so wonderful to hear. I, um, you know, it's just, it's felt like a lot of work. <laughs> it's always, it's so tricky to, um, to believe in what you're doing, especially when it's, um, solo, you know, you write alone. Um, and so to kind of keep believing too, over the years, it takes to write something longer than a poem that, you know, novels take, me a while at least um and and and, but partly too it is that poet sensibility that um I like love the sentences I love you know I love language I love um working with uh that format with language as poetry and as storytelling um and so for me I guess it doesn't feel like yeah like it just happened you know it feels like oh my god it's been so long um that I've been working toward it but uh yes well when I met you 25 years ago and I I knew you were an extraordinary person and I said to myself she's going to do something big I have a feeling she has something big um you're just you're just so filled with love of life and, and, and humans. And I just, it makes all the sense in the world that you would put out these beautiful works of art yourself. Um, being a painter, was that somewhat daunting finding out all about this? What kind of paintings do you do? (laughs) Um, a lot, you know, they, they come from my imagination, a lot of them. Um, and I think it's partly why I've, uh, felt so drawn to the surrealists but especially the women surrealists are their work is so um embodied compared to the men um and i i love the women's work and so yes daunting definitely (laughs) um and inspiring too feeling like oh i can you know have flying fish or whatever it is and you know just kind of like freeing um and i work in oils on canvas mostly do you exhibit uh, your artwork? Um, it's been a little while, but yeah, I have. I have. I've been mostly focused on writing lately. So painting has been kind of um, a, a break for me. Yes. But it's always, um, I don't know, it's the kind of thing like once I start painting, it's really hard to stop because it's always just staring. It's there and you're, you know, you look at it and you go, oh my God, I oh, I need to work on that part or this part where writing yes. you can put it away a little easier. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, I'm so happy you're just living all your dreams and and expressing all of your talents and and the beautiful uh soul that you have in, in all of your work. I really truly want to remind everybody this is the book you want to pick up right now. Just came out in April. Oprah Magazine is calling it the most anticipated historical novel uh in, you know, in the world right now. So Leonora in the morning light is the name of it. Leonora in the morning light. And it is so beautifully, beautifully written. And you'll learn a lot while you're reading it. So Michelle Carter, I have a feeling we'll probably be seeing you on TV and things like that, but I hope you keep writing. Are you going to write anything else? Or are you just going to sort of take a breath right now? Oh, I think I've had the breath, you know, <laughs> You ready to start writing again? Yeah, yeah. I'm 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 working on a few things. So well, I know you can find the book wherever fine books are sold, anywhere whatsoever, including the own bookstore that she founded herself, the Peregrine uh book bookstore. Is that what it's company? Right. Peregrine Company, sorry. Where you are a buyer still? Are you a buyer Mm -hmm. still? Yes. I am. I am. Yeah. So I see all those many thousands of books coming out, uh, you know, every, every month. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, uh, again, stuff go out. out and get it right away. Leonora in the morning light by Michelle Carter. Michelle, thank you so much for being on the way home. And it's been such a treat. Oh, Laura, thank you so much. It's been wonderful getting to talk with you and talk about the book. Thank you for having me. Yes, lots of love to you. Once again, everyone, the book is Leonora in the Morning Light by Michelle Carter and being hailed as one of the most anticipated books of 2021. You're listening to The Way Home. I'm Laura Smith. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. 
My guest today, Lori Benton, she's the Senior Director, Counselor Engagement of the College Board, and she has some wonderful information about how, what resources and how students are actually going to be able to practice for AP exams remotely this year. Everything's different, of course, but the studies show that the students um, really truly want to take the test and be, you know, just like they were um, when they were in school full time. So, Lori, tell us how it's different this year for parents and students that want to participate in the AP exams and then what they are going to find and where they can find it on how to, how to participate this year. Absolutely. Yes, this is a different year. And AP exams um, will be uh, include flexibility. Uh, for students um, in schools. And so this year, each school will make decisions about which AP exam administration options it can provide to its students um, with test dates that begin in early May and through mid-June. Most schools plan to administer AP exams in the traditional way, and that's in school by paper and pencil. But we know there's some schools that will not be able to provide that in-school option. So there are full-length digital AP exams are going to be available in most subjects this year. Um, schools can mix the at-home and in-person exams, as well as mix testing dates as needed. Whether paper or digital, all AP exams will be full length and will measure the full scope of a first-year college-level course. And so I would imagine that after this past year, students have gotten really very well-versed in, in how to learn and how to take exams online, more so than they ever have before. So that hopefully that won't be as daunting to them. Uh, tell us a little bit uh, what additional resources. I know there's a lot of videos that they can uh, download and watch and, and help. Uh, tell us some of these different support systems that are available for the students. Yes, great question. We want to make sure that um, students will uh, be able to access the resources. And so all students have access to free AP Daily videos, as well as AP Daily live review sessions. The free AP Daily live review sessions are on the YouTube channel from now until April 29th. And actually, um, uh, current uh, AP teachers are providing review sessions that include review of course content and skills before the exam. And students can also watch AP Daily videos at any time and on any device through AP Classroom on the College Board's website. We want kids to be prepared. We want students to talk with their teachers about the best ways to practice before the exam. Absolutely. And, and you do find that they are just as interested this year as they have been in past years and equally excited to, to take part in this so that uh, they can get the credits for in their college yes. years. Absolutely. We want to, um, as a reminder, colleges are going to provide credit and placement um, opportunities for students who earn a three or higher on the AP exam. So this is a great way to save time and money. Um, it's a great opportunity for students to uh, challenge themselves. And we want to make sure that they are prepared. And particularly for those students who are taking digital exams, there are a few little um, recommendations that we have. They can actually get ready to start, to ready to download and take those um, get ready for the digital exams right now by downloading and installing the new digital testing app. They can use that app by and practice with sample questions in the app. And first and foremost, we want to make sure that students get the device that they are planning to use to test, download and install the app, practice, absolutely practice and set up for their exam one to three days before each test. And then on test day, students should check into the app at least 30 minutes before the digital exam begins and some pieces of information that's important to students and families and, and educators to know is that the testing app will keep students from losing their work, even if the internet goes out. And all answers can be done in the app. There are no handwritten responses in, on the digital exams. And then finally, to quell any concern, students can request a makeup exam if they experience an unavoidable test disruption. We want to make sure that this is a, 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 a easy opportunity for students to just continue in the vein that they're comfortable and that, that they have what they need in order to be best prepared. Boy, it sounds like you, uh, this may be providing a way for them to, to really kind of take it easy and not be quite as panicked or maybe a lot of right. students have anxiety over exams. It sounds like all these measures are going to help them, you know, maybe it could help them even not be as nervous. So this yeah. is really great information. Lori, if you could tell us where parents and students can find more information, that would be wonderful. 
Wonderful. Students and parents can visit apstudents.org backslash apexams2021. apstudents.org backslash apexams2021. Wonderful, and thank you so much. Lori is a Senior Director for Counselor Community Engagement at the College Board and has so much wonderful information to share with us today. Thank you for that. You're going to be helping a lot of parents and a lot of students ace this year's AP exams. Thank you, Lori. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Once again, here's Laura. My next guest is somebody very important who's done vast amounts of research and speaking on the topic. Purva Jashapura, she's the Senior Vice President of International Affairs for the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals Foundation in the UK, also known as PETA. Purva, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Laura. Uh, you know, I think it's just, I like to have PETA on the program just to talk about the different initiatives. It seems like the older I get, the more concerned I, I get about animals and such, although I haven't myself been able to make the big switch um, into being a vegan or even a vegetarian at this point. I have switched, though, out of all dairy into uh, nut milks and such, but there, there's different perspectives which all of your expertise uh, brings together in terms of how, uh, I guess, really the uh, plant-based uh, diets, how they can actually change the climate and and how the world has been moving that way. When I was a child, actually, my dad worked for a company that I think may have been the first non-meat uh, sausages. I think it was called Morningside Farms or something. I was a young girl and, and the company had come out with that and they were testing it to see if people liked it. And it was actually quite good. And, and I'm sorry to say that all these years later, I'm not still just eating this type of meat. Tell us about what's happening in the industry um, going from meat to plant-based diets and what that means for our planet as well. I also grew up in Brazil where I'm very concerned about the Amazon forest. Oh, well, well, absolutely. I mean, uh, these days, uh, since the time of uh, those first sausages, there's been so much progress that's been made on the vegan meats and the vegan milks and the vegan cheeses, the vegan ice creams that you don't even have to sacrifice on, on the taste anymore if you like that meaty flavor or that creamy flavor. And uh, people who are interested can go on to PETA.org uh, where they can order our free vegan starter kit, um, which is a real good resource for somebody like you or uh, any of your listeners who are thinking about eating more vegan foods or who have started that journey or who want to complete that journey. It's, it's a wonderful resource that has recipes, um, anything you need to, to get on onto that vegan journey. Um, you mentioned Brazil, and that's a, a very important place to, to focus some of our conversation because cattle used and killed for meat and leather are responsible for about 80% of all deforestation in the Amazon region. And it's not only nice to have those trees and those animals, the Amazon produces about 20% of the world's oxygen. Oh my, yes, exactly. I mean, it's it's staggering, really. Has there been any progress made? Because I know they 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 have been talking about this for quite a few years now. Has there been any progress at all in getting, um, you know, the Brazilian government or the ranchers to to kind of pull back on their deforestation? Well, unfortunately, in the Amazon, fires are deliberately set to clear land for animals reared for meat, and and those fires can get out of control. Um, and, and the reason for this is because people are eating the beef. They're wearing the leather. And so increasingly, people around the world are realizing the power that they have, that one of the easiest ways to save animals, the planet, to improve their own health is to eat vegan and to live vegan. In fact, uh, the, the leather industry, there's a report called the Pulse of the Fashion Industry Report, which is highly reputed in, in the fashion world, they concluded that cow leather is the most polluting material in fashion, uh, while silk and wool are also among the five most environmentally damaging materials. And, you know, one of the reasons is because the leather sold in the U.S. is tanned in places like Bangladesh, where they have less environmental controls, less 
human rights uh, uh, norms. And there, because of the chemicals used in, in te uh, leather tanning, 90% of the tannery workers die uh, before the age of 50. So um, we have the power to change that. In fact, uh, researchers at the University of Oxford found that just by cutting meat and dairy products out of our diet, that could reduce an individual's carbon footprint from food by up to 73%, making it conceivably uh, the single biggest way we can reduce our impact on the planet as individuals. Yes. My goodness, it's staggering and, and really alarming as well. Ha tell us a little bit about the marine animal uh, consumption for and, and how is that affecting the environment as well? Oh, well, sure. I think one of the things that uh, we're now increasingly realizing is that the well-being of animals and our own well-being is so interconnected. And 2.7 trillion fish are caught every year. Uh, that means up to 5 million of them are caught every single minute. And studies estimate that for all of the marine life that's caught, about 40% of those are, are not even intended to be, to be caught. Their seals and their seabirds and their sharks and their dolphins and their other animals that are caught by accident uh, as bycatch. And every single one of these animals, uh, you know, plays a role in, in the ocean's health. The ocean's health is important for our own health because the oceans absorb uh, four times the amount of CO2 than, than the whole Amazon rainforest. And we already know that the Amazon rainforest is, is so important. Um, dumped fishing gear. We talk about plastic pollution. Well, dumped fishing gear is the biggest plastic polluter in our ocean. Um, we can talk about farm fish, you know, even farm fish. You have salmon farming in Scotland. I'm actually in the UK right now. Scotland next door, they produce, their salmon farms produce as much organic waste equivalent to a town of between 10 and 20,000 people each year. Mm. So, all of these pollutants, whether it's from the salmon farm fishing industry, whether it's from pig farming, it it can be so uh, dense uh, that it, it kills off all of the life uh, in that in the ocean. It kills off all of the life in that area uh, of water that it's affecting. And the the animals in the ocean they keep the the ocean clean. They keep the ocean healthy and and that in turn keeps us healthy too so it's so important to um to think of all of us as kind of one unit and not sort of separate from from each other so with all of that being said do you see progress with all of your research and and statistics do you see re uh, also do you see like us moving towards a potential of being able to really mitigate these situations for good, or is that kind of pie in the sky, not ever going to happen? No, it's absolutely moving in that direction. In fact, a, a, a global data report, they, they said that 70% of the world's population is either going meat-free or reducing their meat intake. In the United States, the number of vegans grew by 600% in just a three-year period. Um, you know, more and more people are realizing the power that they have to actually make a, a change that they don't have to be, uh, you know, just kind of victims of the climate change or, or what's happening around them or victims of bad health, that they can take charge. Um, it's been found that a, a global switch to vegan diets could save 8.1 million lives by 2050. It can reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 70% lead to healthcare-related savings up to $1,000 billion a year, avoid climate-related damages of $1.5 trillion. Um, so people are realizing that it's a win-win situation for all. Um, if we, you know, there's, there's that old saying that we are what we eat, and, and really evidence shows that if we avoid using our bodies as a graveyard, we too stay alive and thrive. It's mm, a very poignant way of thinking about it. Purva Jashapura, Senior Vice President of International Affairs for the People of Ethical Treatment of Animals Foundation UK, also known as PETA. Thank you for, for this great 
uh, wonderful information that really can can help us. And I know that going to PETA.org, P-E-T-A.org, people can find that starter kit uh, for getting started on a, a, a more plant-based diet and to learn a lot more information that uh, that Porva has has just related to all of us. Thank you so much for being here today and for all the work you're doing in the world. It's, it's greatly appreciated. Thank you so much again for having me. You're listening to The Way Home. We'll be right back. Hi, here's a minute of purpose, improving your life 60 seconds at a time. Meditation is a proven way to reduce stress and improve your daily life. But a lot of us can't do the traditional sitting still thing. So here are some alternatives that will provide the same kind of peaceful state. Crafts like knitting or crochet can clear your mind. Studies show that the repetitive motions are akin to the benefits you experience in yoga. Mindful walking is another alternative form of meditation. Simply focus on each step you take and how you breathe. You can achieve mindfulness and get your exercise. You can even reach a meditative state while doing household chores. As you vacuum the floor or wash the dishes, keep your attention focused on what you're doing. So, if traditional meditation techniques aren't for you, try these other ways to a more peaceful state of mind. This has been your Minute of Purpose. Find more now at nowwithpurpose.com. Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. The issues surrounding diversity and inclusion in the workplace remain at the forefront of the national conversation. And my next guest is a wonderful representative of all of that. Her name is Carla Grant Pickens, um, the IBM Chief Diversity Officer. I'm so grateful you're on today to talk about this new concept that may, well, maybe it's new to some of us, neurodivergency in the workplace. Carla, thanks for being here. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Laura. Tell us a little bit what neurodivergency is, especially as it pertains to hiring and inclusivity and diversity in the workplace. Absolutely. So, so look, neurodiversity is acceptance and respect for people with neurological differences. And these differences can include autism, attention deficit, hyperactivity. It could be dyslexia. It could also be a, having a speech or learning delay, many, many different neurological differences. Um, these individuals do not have a disease to be, cur- to be cured. Um, they are different in that last. And we really just want an opportunity to be able to bring their full selves to work uh, and an opportunity to compete. More than 85% of this community is underemployed or unemployed. And we have a lot of amazing untapped talent that we have not been able to access that I want your listeners to be aware of. You know, that's really incredible. And, you know, when we do think of people with those types of issues, I guess we don't really think about them joining joining a, a workforce, perhaps even something like IBM. And I don't know why. I mean, that must be a stigma from just 100 years ago. Um, and yet, how is it that you're able to incorporate um, them into your business structure? And what have you found through research in terms of their capabilities and ability um, to perform wonderfully um, in a workplace such as this? Yeah, I mean, we have been able to harness such amazing talent. So just a little bit of um, background and research. We found that one in 50 people are autistic. And then that ratio goes down when you include all neurological differences to about one in 20 people. So that means that either the odds that either you have worked with, um, met, or worked in the past with someone neurodivergent um, who's a neurodivergent professional, um, whether they self-identify or not, is highly likely. Many people go undiagnosed their entire life or find out later in life. And you may even become neurodivergent within your life, um, depending upon uh, a particular um, situation that may happen. Um, So it's really a lot of misconceptions about this community having limited work abilities, difficult communicating or fitting in in the culture, or being less than or not successful and and resilient. And these are all myths. We are finding out this is very, very far from the truth. Um, When you could provide basic accommodations, this community can really thrive. We are finding our most innovative, creative, our most dedicated, loyal, ability to focus on attention to detail, ability to have a higher accuracy of work uh, where the errors are much lower. 
Um, these are just some of the benefits that we are finding um, in this community by removing barriers for entry for hire. That's really amazing and um, very important, I think, for just, you know, the average um, person to realize that within their own company, they, that their colleagues could be dealing with this, but also have so much to offer that maybe hasn't even been discussed before. What programs and initiatives has IBM specifically launched to accommodate the neurodivergent professionals? And how do you procure them? Or do you make it known to them? How do you promote what you have to offer to that community so that they can find you? Yeah, so the first thing we've done is we provide an opportunity for people to identify at the hire process as a candidate that they're neurodivergent and to request any accommodations. This will allow them to request maybe um, an, an informal interview, not to do an application, and they may need some tools to be able to communicate with us, um, to engage with us. We train our hiring managers um, by educating them on how to interview neurodivergent candidates, um, but also to enhance their ability to remove their own bias and to be open to the possibilities of where this talent can fit in the organization and be successful and grow. We also offer, once they're hired, an opportunity for them to request tools for success. There are many things that they can um, utilize that many of us will probably want to utilize um, to make their job and their experience um, to be a beneficial for them to be successful. One example would be being able to have um, noise canceling headphones. That removes the noise in the spaces in the room that may often distract so that they I may have the opportunity to focus and get their work done. I mean, this is something in a remote environment. And when you work in open space environments, that could be something anyone could potentially use. So that's just one example. Um, we also offer spaces and places for this community to be able to come together. We also have ally training around the neurodiversity community where, where our employees, our IBMers can do an education program and get a badge so they could be allies and they can show up as mentors and coaches to support the success of this community and to make sure that they are having a full experience in our workplace. Absolutely. Um, it, it's just, um, as I said before, very eye-opening. And I'm so grateful that um, this is being taken into consideration and, and, and this whole population can be absolutely not only integrated but a huge part of the success of any company where can our listeners carla go for more information absolutely so your listeners can go to www.ibm.com front slash be equal to learn more about neurodiversity oh very very exciting thank you so much carla grant pippins is the chief diversity officer at IBM. Thank you so much for being here today. It's a great and important topic. Thank you for being on The Way Home. Thank you for the opportunity. You're listening to The Way Home. I'm Laura Smith. We'll be right back. Balance of nature's fruits and vegetables in a capsule, changing the world one life at a time. This stuff is fabulous. Your commercials don't even do it justice. The energy, everything, it's just amazing. Even mental acuity, just to keep the mental acuity going and the strength. And I'm 68. I'm going to be 69 a few months, and I feel like I'm 30. I really do. I feel good. In fact, people say, your skin looks so nice lately. Thank you. <laughs> you know, it's balance of nature. It's amazing. Get a wide variety of all your daily recommended servings of whole fruits and vegetables without having to leave your home. Right now, Balance of Nature is offering free shipping and 35% off on any new preferred order. Call 800-246-8751. That's 800-246-8751. Or by going to balanceofnature.com and make sure to receive this special radio offer by using discount code LARA. Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. Happy Memorial Day weekend, everyone. It's always hard saying happy in front of Memorial Day because um, we think of all of our wonderful veterans. Um, 
from time immemorial who have uh, stepped up so that we can stay free. And uh, it's because of the brave. So we thank all of them as we think of them this weekend, a Memorial Day weekend. Well, we always go out with some good news, uplifting news to keep you excited and fresh and starting your new week. So Jim is here with all the best news he could find. And I want to tell you the story about a woman uh, in Southwick, Massachusetts, who really feels like a million bucks, not only figuratively, but literally. And I'll tell you why. Uh, she goes by the name of Fiega. And not that long ago, she bought a lottery ticket and she decided uh, she accidentally threw it away, thinking it wasn't worth anything. She scratched it and she had to hurry on her way to work. So she just gave it back to the owners of the store, thinking it wasn't worth anything. Well, it sat there in the trash in that store for 10 days and the owners uh, took a look at all the tickets. They scratched that one off, and they realized that ticket was worth $1 million, and she didn't even know that. So what happened was uh, the woman's name is Fiega. That's her name. And the son of the owners of the store, Abby Shaw, decided to do something about it. He recognized her. The family knew her because she was a frequent customer of that store. So he got in touch with her. She, uh, he went to her workplace and said, hey, uh, my mom and dad want to meet you. I said, no, 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 I'm a little too busy. No, you've got to come and see them. They presented her with that million-dollar ticket, which she thought she was thrown away, wasn't worth anything. Well, needless to say, it was an emotional time for her. And what makes this even more special is that she, not that long ago, back in January, had a near-fatal bout of COVID. And so to make this 180 from near death to a millionaire, I mean, that's one of the great comeback stories I have ever heard. And needless to say, she's happy. So what happened was the store gets $10,000. That's the take for selling the ticket, as they usually do with this. She says she's going to give that family who found that ticket an extra bonus, and she will save the rest of the money for her retirement. Just an incredible story. Oh, it gives me goosebumps. And to think of that, those store owners, how incredibly heroic and full of integrity that they were to do that instead of keeping it for themselves, which I've actually heard stories about that where you've had some crooked places like that. Those people are the salt of the earth. They deserve the extra bonus and then some. What a beautiful story, Jim. Thank you so much. Is, is there time for one more? No? Okay. Yeah, just, it's just a wonderful story. And uh, again, just it's, it's things like that that really just touch you, just really hit you in the heart. I'm telling you, it's, it's a great happy ending uh, to a Sunday night. And, and as a Memorial Day weekend, we are just so grateful once again to all of our veterans um, that have passed away. And um, we just will never forget you and all that you have done to keep our country safe and the great country that it is. For all of you, lots of love from the way home. Have a wonderful week.